Our second lesson this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, and it's printed right there in your bulletin. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. And stop for just a second there. When Jesus heard this is referring to when he heard that John the Baptist, his cousin, the one who had announced prophetically uh, what Jesus would be doing in this world, uh, he, he heard that John had been killed, murdered by the state, murdered by Herod. That's what Jesus heard. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away, so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. And he blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides them, women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The words of the prophet Isaiah, who called us to worship this morning, were written in the midst of Israel's exile. Israel's exile from the land. You may remember, if you grew up in the church, and if you didn't, it's fine. I think you'll follow along with this, with this uh, line of thinking here this morning. There was a time in the history of Israel where the Babylonians conquered Israel, and they were carried off into exile. And Isaiah is written at this time to the exile community. The exile community was living under Babylonian rule, and they found themselves working within the Babylonian economy. And as they were living and working and being ruled by the Babylonians, there was a profound risk that God's unique people, Israel, would just simply assimilate. And they would forget their unique identity as God's chosen people a people that have been set apart by God to be a blessing to the whole human race. They were slaving away in Babylon, working in a political economic setting that was strictly quid pro quo. As in most political and economic systems, ancient or contemporary, the Babylonian was no exception. It made it easier for the rich and powerful to amass more wealth and power, while the weak and the poor were kicked to the curb. But Israel, Israel knew a different way. Israel knew 
that God requires us to respond to the needs of our neighbors who are in profound need, regardless of their ability to respond in kind. Israel knew this because A, God required it in his law, and because B, it's rooted in his very character. His generosity with us calls forth a generous response from us. The wonderful and lovely and intellectually gifted, I can't say enough good things about Walter Brueggemann this morning for some reason. None of this is in my notes, but when I think about Walter Brueggemann, I think about a guy whose scholarship is towering, but his pastoral heart is, is so tender and sensitive. Hard to get that combination, but Brueggemann has it. Brueggemann says this of, of this, um, this time in, in the life of Israel. When Brueggemann talks about the way that God called Israel to live, uh, he calls it uh, a way of living that is, is full of neighborly love and neighborly justice. And, and, he, and he contrasts it with the, the Babylonian um, rule that they were living under at the time. And, and he calls the, uh, the Israel way the alternative. Now I'm going to quote Brueggemann. This alternative breaks the harsh demand of quid pro quo. It knows that healthy social relationships depend on generous hospitality. It consents that instead of scorekeeping, quid pro quo, that what is needed are large acts of forgiveness. Large acts that even in the Old Testament law included cancellation of debts of the poor. There, of course, he's referring to the Jubilee year. Israel knew a different way. And that's part of what Isaiah is doing when he calls them to remember the superabundance of God. He says, you know, you're destined to live in a world to come uh, where you can come and you can drink wine for free. You can mill your grain for free. And the work that you do, it won't frustrate you. It's going to deeply satisfy you. And so what Isaiah is saying is, don't lose sight of that in the Babylonian captivity. Hold on to it, because those are the promises of God. In calling God's people to remember their unique identity and their purpose in the world, Isaiah beckons them to have faith in the provisions of the God who deals in abundance and who wishes to be the one who blesses all, all, all people. Now, this morning I think we can all admit to ourselves, we've all experienced the feelings of futility associated with simply going with the flow, going with the system, right? We've all spent our money for bread that wasn't bread. And we've all worked for things in such a way that leaves us only wanting more. Oftentimes our labor and the fruits of our labor do not satisfy us because we have no greater vision for their use other than for ourselves or for those who can in turn enrich us. Now the remedy for this is to return to a proper worship of God, which includes at its core a confession that, as the prophet says a little later in that reading of the call to worship, Proper worship of God that includes at its core confession, or at its core, a confession that God's ways are not our ways, 
Hallelujah for that. God's ways are not our ways. That includes his message that we should not think of our relationships with others in zero-sum terms. But that when we're put in a situation where we're dealing with those in need of help, when we're put in a situation where we're dealing with those who are on the margin, standing on the outside, looking in, who need a place at the table, our reflex should be to find a way, find a way to tap into God's wisdom, grace, and resources and step out to provide graciously for those in need, even when the resources available look meager at best. In our texts from Romans and Matthews, we see exactly this dynamic at work. Now, I'm going to refer to this dynamic as the more than enough love to go around fueled dynamic. The more than enough love to go around fueled dynamic. In Romans 9, I think it was Anna that read that to us, or maybe it was Kathy before communion. In Romans 9, Paul contemplates the reality that so many of his fellow Israelites have rejected Jesus, and it breaks his heart. Breaks his heart. His first response is, is not, oh man, how could they have been so boneheaded? How could they have been so dumb to miss that Jesus was the Messiah? That's not his, his response. His response is, is instead saying this. Man, if I could, I'd give my very life. I would give my very life for my brothers and sisters in order for them to be able to see God's love for them in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's what he says. That's his reflex. And then he begins a prayerful and serious contemplation that stretches through to the end of chapter 11. Wherein, in this, in this contemplation, Paul thinks about all of the Old Testament promises of God to his people and to the world in light of what he's learned new about them from the gospel. And at the end of chapter 11, this is where it all culminates. And he says this. He says, all of Israel will be saved. All of Israel will be saved. And he says, this is how I know this. He says, out of Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they're enemies of God. But they're enemies for, of God for your sake. And he's talking to the Gentiles there. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their ancestors. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Paul's point 
in this abiding hope is not based on wishful thinking or an attitude towards grace that says whatever you believe, it doesn't really matter. Paul's conviction lies in God's tireless pursuit of human beings, God's tireless pursuit of his divine image bearers, who he will keep pursuing to hell and back if that's what it takes to overwhelm us with his love in Jesus so that we might come to our senses, repent and follow him so that we might be able to flourish as God intends for us to flourish. Now, I don't expect you to follow all of, of, of what's in between Romans 9, 1 and at the end of chapter 11, but what I want you to see, continuing this thread, this, this lovely thread from Isaiah to Romans to the Matthew reading, this idea of God's superabundant love and mercy is meant to cause us to have a reflex default response when we see scarcity in front of us, whether it's scarcity of grace, scarcity of mercy, scarcity of physical resources, our default reflex response is to, be, is to trust in the superabundant love and grace and mercy of God and to step out in faith and walk into that in a way that we can help alleviate suffering or that we can stand in the gap for someone and hope for them when they have no hope for themselves. And that's what he's doing in Romans 9 through 11. He, said, looks, he looks around and he says, look at all these people that have not yet understood God's love for them in Jesus. What's going to happen to them? And you trace his thinking. And what he finds, the Old Testament promises in light of the gospel is, God's going to get them. <laughs> That's what's going to happen to them. God is going to keep pursuing them to the gates of hell and back if that's what it takes because that's God's obsession is loving human beings, redeeming human beings, restoring human beings. Now, finally, this more than enough love to go around fuel dynamic. That's also what's on display here when Jesus says to the disciples about the hungry crowd they need not go away. They need not go away. He says, in effect, even though you can't see how you can feed these people according to your limited resources, you should still step out in faith, trust in God's capacity. Now, I mentioned before that this gracious response of Jesus comes right after the news that John the Baptist has been beheaded. It's his cousin. It's the prophet God used to introduce him. In John the Baptist's fate, Jesus can, can see his own fate. He goes away to be quiet. He goes away to grieve. And the people keep coming. The people keep coming. And what does Jesus do? Jesus taps into the same thread that we're seeing here. This more than enough love to go around fuel dynamic. And he says to his disciples... While he's grieving, he says to his disciples, they need not go away. They need not go away. There's more than enough, more than enough to go around. Trust in God's capacity. And we should remember that um, when we are dealing with these things on a daily basis, because isn't this, doesn't this idea hit us all 
where we live? Haven't we all been tempted to withhold love from another person instead of asking God to remind us of his superabundant love and mercy? Haven't we all been tempted to, to step back and protect ourselves when really what we should have done is take a step forward and risk and provide for someone else, whether it's just our time or our resources in some way. The question for you and me this morning, as we, as we contemplate this thread that has run through all three of our scripture readings, the question for you and me this morning is basically this one. Are our reflexes shaped by the Holy Spirit so that we are enabled to rely on this more than enough love to go around fueled dynamic? Are we dependent on the Spirit so that we might believe that God has more than enough for everyone? Do we seek out those standing on the outside looking in and do we find a way to welcome them to the table? Are we generous with our love and forgiveness with others as God has been generous to us. I mean, it hits us in all these real mundane moments of life, doesn't it? I mean, I can tell you in the not too distant past, you know, of a situation where my daughter was asking me, can't you do this? And I'm thinking, no, I can't do that. I'm tired. I don't want to do that, you know? And sometimes it's fine to say you're tired, you can't do that. You have to have boundaries, right? But sometimes, and just in the moment, you know that you stepping out and relying on God's provision is going to be a little measure of inconvenience for you. But it's going to make a super big difference for someone else. It's just, it's just being attuned to the leading of the Spirit, and, and realizing this thread that runs through the readings today. This thread is what's at the very heart of God. That our reflexes, I think that's what it boils down to, our reflexes need to be trained. So that, you know, when it comes, when push comes to shove, our default response is, I'm going to find a way to tap into God's superabundant grace, love, mercy, provisions, and I'm going to at least try to meet this need that's right in front of me. Sisters and brothers in Christ, friends, we've been welcomed at this table this morning. We've been fed with the food, and we've been given the drink that's free of charge. And it's the only one that really satisfies. May God grant that our life be shaped in an ongoing worshipful response to that experience at communion this morning. May we be called forth the prophetic words of Isaiah. Come, 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 and feast on God's bountiful grace and love that we might become more bountiful and gracious to others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.